and welcome to this week's Please Make It Stop episode of Spin Cycle, where over the next hour we try to make sense of the week's media goings-on, even if we'd rather hide in a chafe bag until the election is over. Coming to you from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, always was, always will be, I'm Jess Lilly, and while unfortunately Najma Sambul is unable to be in the studio this evening, I am joined on the phone from Western Australia by crikey reporter Charlie Lewis, who has hopefully done the gonzo journalism thing and is now being guided in his election reporting by the medicine. We shall find out momentarily. In about 15 minutes, we'll be chatting with journalist and Indigenous ex-creative development uh, manager Rachel Hocking about um, the amazing-looking internship program Indigenous X is running. Also their uh, take on the election coverage and their own election coverage and also why she's found her way away from mainstream media into um, the incredible platform that is Indigenous X. So stick around for that. But Charlie, how are you? I am barely, barely clinging to my sanity. Um. <laughs> you still sound with us, though. I'm impressed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, it's, it's sort of, you know, the, the, it's like rolling downhill. The motion's already happening. I can't... I, I'm powerless to stop any of it now. <laughs> so, um, uh, look, I... Um, I was still traumatised, a little bit too traumatised by um, watching uh, the leaders' debate on Sunday to um, to even uh, look at yet last night's. But apparently, it was um, it was a full pitch to to the Western Australian uh, voting. Electrics. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. I mean, it was organised by by Channel Seven and um, and the West Australian, the, the the Daily newspaper over here. So both both owned by the same guy, Kerry Stokes. And that's an interesting element, actually, to all all the WA stuff is that uh, Kerry Stokes has a level of penetration with his media ownership in WA that you know Rupert Murdoch couldn't dream of having mm. uh, nationwide. Uh, but he kind of goes under the radar again because uh, people forget so much about WA. Um, but it was interesting because <laughs> yeah, it wasn't ever explicit said this is the debate for Perth, but it was obviously, it, it was held at what was after nine o'clock for most of the country, but was, you know, ten past seven over here. Um, as I say, it was, it was organized by uh, Channel 7 and by, by uh, the West Australian, and they got the uh, the West Australian federal politics uh, editor, Lenai Scar, to specifically come in and ask some, some WA-centric questions. So it does, again, really point to that, um, and I would say this because I've been sent over here to cover it, but why WA does appear to be a really sort a key battleground now for this for this coming election. Um, I don't know if you saw the the Sunday night version. <laughs> Sixty <laughs> minutes. Oh my god, that was just. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, no, it, it was. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say the only thing that was comparable was like when I was a kid and I used to watch like Hulk Hogan and stuff in the. <laughs> The WWF. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I, based on the um, the like subterranean expectations we were taking into this debate, it was definitely uh, better than the previous two, uh, which is not saying a huge amount, but it was it was less dull than the first one, and it was not you know incoherent and unwatchable like the second one was. Um, yeah, but I think partly partly that's down to Mark Riley, who was the moderator. He did actually a very good job of keeping everyone more or less on topic and keeping everyone to their times and, and stopping them sort of interrupting each other too much, although there was some back and forth, but that, that seemed appropriate uh, when it was happening. Uh, so, yeah, uh, to that extent, it was probably the, the 
quote-unquote best of the, uh, the debates we've had so far. But we haven't got to have another one for three years. <laughs> Take heart. <laughs> so um, how's um, reporting been going over the last week in WA? Where, where have you been and, and what have you been looking at? Right, yeah. So I... Um, <laughs> I think we talked about this last week. My sort of big trip over the last week has been out into the electorate of Durak, uh, mm. which is a massive continent-sized expanse of land that covers most of uh, northern Western Australia. It covers uh, 1.6 uh, million square kilometres. Um, it, it's one of the biggest single-member electorates in, in all the world. The, the biggest that has that has compulsory voting. Um, How many? And, um, what's the population? It, you know? uh, the, the, the voting population is just under a hundred thousand, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, which yeah, so 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 a big a big big area mm. and a big very sparsely populated area. Uh, it's 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 a very safe uh, liberal seat held by um, defence industry minister uh, Melissa Price, who um, has been you know it's sort of famous for quite, being quite good at going under the radar. Oh uh, yes, you did mention this, yeah. Yeah, she occasionally crops up when she's done something catastrophic. Like she, she's the minister who said to um, the f- former Kiribati president, "It's always about the money." With the specific, I'll get my checkbook out now. I don't know if you remember that little incident, but, yeah. that, but those are the kind of things you hear from her. But she, she is, I mean, I think considered a reasonably effective local member to the extent that you kind of can be, and that's that's the thing that's so striking about it. And the thing I try to put across in the writing that I did about it was that um, there's no obvious community center in a place like direct there's no obvious community issue that you can rally around and really uh make a defining issue if you were ever to you know try and unseat uh, a sitting member even if it wasn't as incredibly safe as it is mm-hmm. so i spent a lot of time while i was down there um talking with various advocates for things like climate change and and uh, also there's a there, there was actually a push of a voices of Dirac kind of group that was trying to get a kind of teal style independent to to campaign there but of course it's you know the the the, the thing that one of the things that the teal independents you know, really have in common is they're usually high-profile local people with quite a you know a big profile that, that that kind of represent and resemble the people they're trying to pry away from the Liberal Party. That's much much harder to achieve when you've got um, over a million and a half kilometres of different communities with a world of different issues and a world of different concerns that you're trying to kind of keep happy. And so, yeah, if, if an entire town could could do a protest vote and it wouldn't really shift the needle. You know? Yeah. Um, so, did you find anything interesting? Any kind of interesting stories there? Well, I mean, yeah, as I say, there's the, 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 the. I think the thing that kind of would would uh, took heart from, as I say, the, the, the voices of mm. uh, group was was sort of frustrated in their attempts. They 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 weren't able to find an intermediate candidate for the yeah. time. Yeah. But they, they do say that they're going to keep at that. I mean, I think what what it kind of became clear. I'm going to I'm going to keep looking into this because I think there's more more to it. But I think it really became clear that. And I think this is actually quite a useful thing for just for politics in general, political involvement generally, is you can't really outsource it to the politicians if you live in these places. You kind of have to do it a bit grassroots. Mm. And you have to be, you actually have to kind of maybe just focus locally. That's what, they, that's what the, 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 the Midwest Carbon Zero uh, group that I, was, I spoke to, it's sort of like you focus on what's achievable and you talk about, you know, you talk to local people about the issues mm. that affect them. You try and convince people one at a time. You, you try and get the, the, the local council involved, that, that kind of thing. Um, so I suppose that, that was the kind of, that, that, that's the answer that they've come up with. Mm. I, that's interesting because I saw a, um, a kind of complaint from a 
local reporter from Newcastle today saying, you know, when um, the federal election rolls around and the bus rolls into town with um, the, the, the full Morrison kind of circus, the, the actual local issues just get completely drowned mm-hmm. out by all of the, um, you know, the, all of the, the pack, the press, main, the press pack that just continues whatever the, the bigger conversation is along the way and and the local media who are trying valiantly to um to report for their community um sort of get pushed pushed aside and and really their issues don't even come to the fore absolutely yeah Um, you know are you seeing in western australia any interesting local issues that you might not have otherwise um discovered had you you know had you been reporting from here or Oh, I mean, yeah, I think, and I think that probably is true. As soon as you go into any, I, I, I think you've sort of covered it there a little bit. That you go into any electorate, and there's there's stuff that doesn't come to the surface because it's not part of the the kind of grand narrative that's being covered. Mm. I think, I think, I think that certainly is. It was a huge. The thing that I think was very striking about being in, in so it was in Geraldton that I went to, uh, yes. which is about 400 kilometres north of, um, of of Perth, uh, is that it, it sort of it, it feels actually like a little bit of a kind of. Um, a simulacra of, of WA's political issues as a whole, because it's 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 so vast and diverse and so spread out and sprawling, um, and it feels like there is an entire continent between you and the people who make decisions about how your whole life is going to go. Uh, and I, I, I'm very interested. I'm, I'm sort of trying to get still trying to get my head around, I guess, about how that shapes the politics of a place like WA. And when you was when you were like, "I'm Charlie from Crikey," were they just like, "Who? What?" <laughs> Um, Why should I talk to you? And then you're like, I grew up here. I grew up here. (laughs) Um, A couple of people actually, to be fair, had heard of me, and that's that's you know, but not heard of me. Heard of Crikey? Sorry, I should say. Um, (laughs) But yes, you can go under the radar a little bit. People, people don't. It's not like going to the ALP launch where you're like, (laughs) everyone has a thought on Crikey, whether it's good or bad in this place. Amazing, and so so. Where to next? Just you're, you're um, seeing out the election over there. What what are you? What other sort of angles are you hoping to cover? Well, the, the next uh, the next thing I did I mean, so the other thing I did this week was was Fremantle, which uh, is yes. uh, you know I was I was looking for any excuse to sort of write about that place because I'm very fond of it. But it's it's a, it's a funny one again. It's it's one of those sort of misconceptions about what Fremantle is because uh, people think of it and, and 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 Fremantle itself is like this. People think of it as a you know very cosmopolitan, multicultural, hippie-ish kind of very left-leaning place. And indeed, at, at state level, they've voted in the only lower house state green that WA has ever had. And they had like a, a local green mayor and things like that. So people yeah. often think, oh, well, that's the place where you know Labor might be in real danger of losing out to the Greens. But it, but Fremantle, the place, and Fremantle, the electorate are again so different because uh, it, it sprawls into the suburbs all around, and it's much more conservative. So it's actually a really interesting detail that I sort of picked up was that when. Local member Josh Wilson, who's uh, the, the, the Labour candidate for, for Fremantle, he's held it since, I believe, 2016. He, he actually had to recontest his seat after he was found ineligible under Section 44 back in that, that oh, whole yes. rash. Of, he was one of those MPs, one of the later ones to be sort of to be found out. Um, and the, the Liberal Party didn't actually run a candidate against him, mm. which, which, is, which says something about how safe the, the Labour find that. 
And indeed, I went to a candidates forum in Fremantle, and, and the Liberal candidate uh, didn't show up, and, and everyone else kind of did. Um, but what was interesting about that that by election in 2018, when when Josh Wilson was was returned, was that the Greens didn't even come second. It, it was the Liberal Democrats who actually came second. They became the proxy kind of Liberal Party in this. So it's interesting. It, the, the assumption that, that, that Fremantle is going to be this this sort of hard left kind of uh, yeah green. Uh, sort of a revolution sort of place is actually kind of not the case. Are there any surprises that are, that that you think are um, brewing in WA, or is it relatively sort of predictable where where they, where it's going to go at the moment? Uh, you, I mean, you can never you can never really predict. So my my, my next stop is is Hasluck, which is mm. one of the three seats that Labor have sort of identified as. Um, as being potentially in play, the the, the sort of the, the the understanding that I'm getting, uh, sort of just from the various people I've spoken to um, behind the scenes, is that that they're quietly very very keen that Swan and Pierce might be the ones that, that go. So that's that's Christian Porter's old seat, mm. and also Steve Irons held Swan for many years on quite a small margin, but he held it. Now he's retiring, so there's that that lo- whatever local profile he had is kind of gone. Uh, and then there's obviously all the controversy surrounding Christian Porter in Pierce. Um, so th- 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 there's, a, there's a big th- th- they think that's really really. Maybe not close to likely that they might be able to surprise those ones back. Hasluck is kind of at the outer edge of of what they think is possible. They think all things, you know, if we have an absolute blinder, if the swing is really, really big over here, then we might be able to take Hasluck as well. Um, and in terms of surprises, I mean, I think you know, again, I, I, I talked a lot about the seat of Curtin uh, last time. I think that's going to be a really, really interesting one. If, if uh, which is being targeted by Kate Cheney, who is uh, an independent going against the liberal uh, incumbent Celia Hammond, who replaced Julie Bishop, that would be catastrophic for the Liberal Party if they lost that seat, because mm. that's been their safest one for, for many, many years. Um, and the, the other one, I guess, is worth keeping an eye on, but but it's interesting. No one seems to be really talking about it that much, is the seat of Cowan, which is held on a very, very small margin by Labour's Anne Ali, a uh, former counterterrorism expert and uh, a c- c- Actually, a teacher at my old university, um, uh, but it's sort of considered that she's probably going to be okay. But I think it is worth keeping an eye on, and you wouldn't want to obviously get ahead of yourself in a seat with a less than one percent margin. Charlie, are you enjoying yourself driving around Western Australia harassing people for their political opinions? <laughs> I've been I've been saying this to a lot of people. It's it's sort of there is this sort of this sort of sick dichotomy where it's kind of like on one level it's like oh this is what we all live for when we as a political writer you know this is where all the the good stuff happens but also it's once you're in it you're like when is this going to finish when can I just have a normal because also I think the other thing just to get, complain about my my day is that because of the time difference uh, I've often got to get my piece in by about eight thirty in the morning in, in my time but most of the events I'm doing are like late at night so it's mm. a real like write all night, get up very early, make sure it's half coherent, and then yeah. So, so it's not doing my sanity any good. But I am, I am actually really, really enjoying the process. And it's very interesting being in your own, ho- your old hometown as a writer yeah. rather than as a citizen. That's that's been very interesting. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm very glad I'm doing it. Brilliant. Well, next week is going to be a cracker. It'll only be a few days away, so we look forward to um, speaking to you then. And by then, no doubt, you'll be completely unhinged, and that's the kind of radio I like to bring our listeners.
Absolutely. That's what the the Triple R community relies on and expects from us. (laughs) Thanks so much, Charlie. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Now, uh, joining us on the phone, I'm very pleased to introduce Rachel Hocking, who's a creative development manager at Indigenous X. She's also a journalist, curator and presenter, TV presenter. You'll have seen Rachel on your screens at NITV, where she was a reporter and presenter from 2015 to, to last year, including co-hosting its flagship show, The Point. In 2020, Rachel was named Media Person of the Year at the Dreamtime Awards and received a First Nations Media Australia Award for her reporting on the death of Kamanjai Walker in Yundamut. Rachel is a director of the board of the DART Centre for Journalism and Trauma in the Asia Pacific, where she advocates for better trauma-informed reporting in Indigenous communities. It sounds fascinating. Here to tell us all about it, welcome Rachel Hocking to Spin Cycle. Hey, thanks for having me, Jess. It is my absolute pleasure. How are you going? Yeah, not too bad. I'm just gearing up for a game of dodgeball. In a I couple know. Of hours. <laughs> Since you told me that the other day, I have just I can't get the vision of you playing dodgeball out of my head. I was like, do you, I was like, do you think? Do you think I should just ask Rachel just to do a little sneaky video so I can see what it's all about? Because I'm so into it. I'm so into it now. I, it just didn't occur to me that you could actually just sign up and play dodgeball. Yeah, I truly apologise for that image because if you've ever seen me play, it's um, a sight to behold. No, it's, yeah, basically a sport I think that exists for people like me who are not sports savvy. Um, and if you have a little something you need to get out of your system on a Thursday night, then throwing a ball will do. Um, throwing a ball yeah. at other humans. I love it. Other humans. That is legal. It's great. Um, now, uh, the 10th year of Indigenous X is, is a pretty good time to join a decade in tell us about mm. tell us about um about what indigenous sex is up to i mean it started i guess a decade ago as a really amazing sort of um social media platform um for um, blackfellas to kind of um broadcast to each other really to create a community and has become actually a, a really um big and important independent um, media platform tell us how, how's your first kind of is it how, it's about six months how long have you been there yeah, nearly. I started um, first week of January this year, and um, I mean, my relationship with Indigenous Sex goes back further. I've always yeah. been a friend of it. Um, all of us remember when Indigenous Sex was just a hashtag back on Twitter ten years ago, and then Luke Pearson uh, got permission to turn that hashtag into a media company, black-owned, black-run, um, and yeah, it's, it's been steadily building into something a bit bigger than a Twitter account, um, <laughs> which is really exciting to be part of. Yeah, Matt's team too, like loveliest people you meet. It is actually quite a um, formidable platform now and, um, you know, it's a, a news platform. There's a, a lot of um, reporting and we'll get to that in a moment. But actually it's also a, a really incredible kind of education platform as well to build um, – great um, First Nations kind of content creatives, content producers, reporters and uh, you know, I mean, and there's actually there's an amazing sort of um, traineeship program that's being advertised at the moment, uh, Our Truth, Our Way. Can you tell us about that program and, and what the sort of intent is? Is it to build the platform so there's a, a bigger media presence for 
um, you know, like you said, black-owned independent media presence for the black community, or is it to make sure that there's a there's a, a bigger pool of really um, well-trained, incredibly skilled and talented creatives to send out in the world? I think it's I think it's a bunch of those things combined. But to be, so I was employed by Indigenous X to come on as. Uh, a co-manager of the Our Truth, Our Way internship. So that's my primary job here is to help develop it and then run it once we uh, have our interns later this year. And I'm running it with Aisha Saunders, who's an uh, incredible, smart, Burupai woman who has been working um, across history, museums um, and in journalism with The Guardian before she joined Indigenous X. And so uh, what you were talking about there in terms of how what, what the goal of the internship is, I think it really is what the interns want to get out of it. I think mm-hmm. that is so important to emphasise. We know that there are not enough blackfellas in the media landscape. Mm-hmm. We need more of us out there. But one of the big sticking points there is where do we want them? A lot of people talk about about building up um, and diversifying mainstream media, so more black faces on TV, um, more of us in the decision-making rooms, all of that. And while I agree that that is something we should fight for, what often gets forgotten and what a lot of us in the media talk about is that we have a really strong independent history of independent black media in this country. Um, it's not as supported as it should be and it doesn't have the resources that mainstream media has, but it has the reach and trust of our communities, which is something you just can never buy. Um, and I think building on the legacy of black media in this country, which goes back you know, to the 1800s, mm. um, but in more recent times, you know, our black radio stations that really took off in the 70s and 80s. I think it's really important to think about why they exist. Um, black media has very specific mandates um, and that, that they're informed by um, correcting, you know, narratives and perceptions of our community that are put out there by the mainstream, but also um, by media. And so one of the things I often talk about is that the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in the early 1990s actually made recommendations around the need for strengthening um, Indigenous media. And the reason for that was because there is a very um, well-known fact that media influences policy, influences perceptions, influences treatment of our peoples. Mm. And so if we can strengthen the backbone um, of our black media, if we can bring um, more of our young people into First Nations-led media rather than seeing it as a stepping stone to go on into the mainstream, um, then I think we're going to get closer to the original purpose of why we were created rather than coming in, getting trained up and leaving. Mm, So what we really want to do with this internship is say, you know, that, that... there are options for you. You can go wherever you want. Um, the world's your oyster, but this is why black media exists and this is why it's important. These are the things you can't learn in university, you know, cultural accountability um, back to your community. There's a reason why our stories are so um, strong when they come out on our platforms and so different to the ones that you see published in the mainstream. It's because we have uh, our community feeding back into us constantly what they expect of us Mm. Um, and that includes when they think we get it wrong Um, (laughs) and because of that constant two-way between us and our communities that we're a part of that we go home to each night um, we're stronger for it and there's trust there that yeah like I said that trust 
it's something that didn't exist at the beginning with mainstream and which has been eroded and which um, I don't think will ever be earned by some people in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. But that, that's what we, that's what our foundation is. It's trust with our peoples. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot for a young person to come into in here yeah. and learn about. But what we want to do is um, make sure they know that, you know, there is there is this world of black media out there. And I think we, we want to focus on making it as strong as possible. And if the young people who come through our internship get through and they want to go and explore the mainstream, then go for it because that's worthwhile cause as well. But I don't think enough, enough of us at university are told that we have this other option. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that... And, and also to your point, yes, um, there's a there's a huge community and cultural accountability that comes with what you do, um, and and responsibility to to the communities. And, and I, li- I like the fact that they're not they're not quiet about letting you know. <laughs> yeah, they shouldn't be either. You know. <laughs> but I do the fact that it's our truth, our way. I mean, it sounds amazing. What an incredible sort of. Um, philosophy to empower young voices with you know this is mm. your truth your way this is what you you're you're empowering them to kind of tell their own stories you know um yeah. i'm interested um I, and you know i, th- I think from what you were saying then as well it makes sense when you think about legal res- representation too and health systems um mm-hmm. that they're only effective or the most effective ones are, are ones that are run by the community themselves or people Absolutely. with with you know knowledge and um, and understanding, and I guess you know you've experienced what it's like to work in the mainstream media, and I've heard this. I've heard from other people, you know, that it's all good and well to have representation, but if the system is not designed for you, then you then it's kind of set up to fail a little bit. What's been your experience with mainstream media, and and how did you choose or decide to then? Um, go to Indigenous X, a more independent kind of platform? Yeah, so I think um, I've had some amazing experiences working at public broadcasters. I've worked across ABC, SBS and NITV. Um, But the most difficult thing that you come up against as um, a young, loud, opinionated black woman (laughs) is there is a level of censorship Um, and um, that's important for varying reasons but there's also uh, censorship that goes too far and I think what um, really drew Indigenous X and other independent black media is that it's it's a constant conversation between us and our team about what we should be publishing based on um, community um, expectations of us. So it's not around uh, what we think the community should be saying, what we think they, um, what sto- what version of the story it is that they need to be telling. It is a conversation with the entire community about is this representing the truth that we can see, you know, is this Mm. actually representing the core of the issue Um, and so having those critical conversations, letting our community inform what we do and don't publish is so different to having white editors tell you that you can't include certain words in your script because they're I don't know, imply bias or whatever. Um, (laughs) It's like a completely different way to report Mm Mm-hmm it is. I think, um, yeah, just scrolling through the Indigenous X website, you'll get a really yeah. good example of, like, we don't really change the voice of the articles that come through to us, you know. We let mob write the way that they speak. Um, I think that's really important as well, like not taking away someone's voice and not 
trying to um, apply mm. um, a standard which, you know, a standard of, I say journalism with quotation marks, um, because a lot of the rules around what constitutes journalism were written by old white men. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, including ideas of balance, you know, and so I think um, what we try and do is be critical about what we publish to make sure that it is actually speaking to um, truths that our community experience, um, making sure that it's representative of um, blackfellas but, um, and true to the voice who's publishing it. We have you know, a, a very big duty of care in what we do put up on the website, making sure that it's not dangerous, for instance, um, that the ideas within the piece are not dangerous to mm. blackfellas. But... Um, Besides that, we, we have just the most amazing yarns come through because mob are just writing the way they speak, you know. Um, mm. I don't know if you've read Artie Ronnie Gorey's yes. Black and Blue. Yeah. yeah. I haven't quite yeah. finished it yet because I've, I've found it. I'm still going, but slightly slowly because it's pretty intense. <laughs> it is, you, you know? know, and Artie Ronnie would say, you know, take care while reading yeah, because yeah. it is heavy. Um mm. Um, that's why but she's got incredible. humour in there too, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I've seen her um, perform, um, I think it was at her Queer Stories, and by God, she's funny, you know. Oh, God, yeah. Belly <laughs> laugh, though, yeah. <laughs> and but what, the whole thing about that book is, you know, that that's, uh, I felt like I was sitting down having a couple with Auntie that whole time, mm. you know, because it was, it, it really um, broke away from um, the rules that Australian mm. literature kind of prescribes for these sorts of texts. Um, I think that's really important because storytelling's in our blood. Like, we know how to do it. We know how to share it out and we can talk your ears off. I'm probably <laughs> doing it now. Um, <laughs> but we, um, we've we been told that our stories need to be uh, shaped in this way, uh, which just don't fit, you know? Mm. It just it ends up like our stories end up spilling out the sides because they, they're being suffocated by these rules that just don't cater to First Nation ways of being and doing and speaking. And, mm. um, yeah, we just want to get away from that while still staying true to the very um, the, the uh, accountability that our community expects of us, um, you know, making sure that there's obviously legal risk and defamation we have to mm. consider with every piece that's not going to go away. <laughs> but um, especially as a small media company, it is bigger for us. But um, uh, outside of that, we can be more creative. We can be a bit more fearless in our storytelling. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned earlier the radio stations, and obviously um, community radio is enormous in because um, there's, you know, obviously across the country so many communities that are relatively isolated, you know, from a media point of view, save for community radio. Um, mm. What do you think, you know, with that sort of, I guess, compared to the very corporatised, very strict kind of definition of mainstream journalism, a much more innovative mode of storytelling, what sort of... um, sort of storytelling platforms excite you in terms of innovating, um, you know, and not not necessarily sticking to the sort of written form necessarily? Yeah, um, so I think podcasting is lending itself really well to blackfellas at the Mm. moment. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of mob just realise that all you need is a little home set up can be pretty affordable um, and just talk, you know, just talk. And I love hearing black voices Mm. on podcasts. I think um, it's a really natural fit for a lot of our storytelling. Um, We're seeing a lot of the black media organisations come out with their own podcasts. For instance, 
Indigenous X. We have a podcast. The Cree Mail have an awesome podcast. They have a couple, actually. Um, and the Cree Mail is, like, an excellent example Amazing. of a black media organisation, primarily newspaper, have their podcasting studio, who are the backbone of a community. You know, they're national. Incredible, yeah. right? What they did for, you know, after the floods is just incredible, given that they were also so deeply affected. Exactly, you know, 50 metres from that levee. They're still still recovering. They copped two floods there. And um, I think what's really important to note is that it wasn't, um, you know, their job to do any of that. Um, Crew Mail just stepped up because, not because they felt like they had to, which they definitely did, but because they actually had the networks. They were Mm. connected to the communities that were most affected. They are trusted, the mob knew them. They knew that if there was going to be a fundraiser, they could run it, they could go to them, they could trust where the money was going to go, they could um, trust that they were going to coordinate the help. They already had the phone numbers for all the people who were affected in communities. They're family members for people who were affected in the communities, you know? Mm. Um, And this is the thing, like, when you have a black media organisation running the relief effort uh, in a, a community that was absolutely devastated by floods... Got to um, think like this is this is decades and decades of hard work, but it shouldn't be them doing it. You know, mm, like of it's incredible that they did, but I still think like a just yeah. I, I really think a lot needs to be said about how much it was just left to them to pick up the pieces, and still to this day, running relief every single day. Also, put out their latest. Um, newspaper, the first one they yeah. were able to drop since the flood. So if you do want to lend a hand, um, obviously there's all the fundraisers you can still donate to, but pick up a crew mail, subscribe. It's subscribe. Not that, it's not that expensive. Uh, it's, yeah. um, I subscribe and it's a, so, it's such a treat getting it in my letterbox <laughs> in, you know, <laughs> in, in wet and cold Victoria, um, getting that sort of um, like dose of, of somewhere completely different and just it's such a joy to see that newspaper, you know, and I think I think it really does shake you out of your accept- acceptance of um, what does account for the media in this country. I mean, we know media ownership yeah. is so narrow anyway. And uh, to your point about you know the gatekeepers being old old white men. I mean, the systems, mm-hmm. the systems, and we've seen just in this election coverage what the corporatization of the media, you know, where it ends up in terms of um, who gets to to say what. Um, and speaking of election coverage, you know, it's it's pretty, you know, you'd love to think that um, deaths in custody would be an issue that journalists are asking leaders about or raising the age or the overrepresentation yeah. of First Nations people in the prison system or, you know, I mean, even cost of living is a huge um, issue and it's becoming even bigger in the last weeks of the election. I mean, cost of living of gross, you know, groceries in some communities, some isolated communities are um, a phenomenal eye-watering, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But we haven't seen that. <laughs> what are the issues being raised? I mean, the, the uh, Indigenous X has its, uh, had its own election coverage. What are the things that, you know, I guess are most frustrating about a lot of those issues not making it into the debate? Look, I think, um, yeah, black media will continue to talk about the issues at a local level no matter what. But I think, yeah, there's a really big conversation that mob are having around um, 
involvement right now and who is actually going to be voting come mm. election day. And I think um, we hear this yarn every election, you know, in Northern Territory, 30% of eligible blackfellas um, who can vote are not enrolled. And um, it's not because of... Um, a lack of desire to change the system or want to exercise their democratic right. It is very much um, to do with just this complete disengagement, this mm. disenfranchisement with the system. It's it's insane how many people you walk up to and even in my family and you yarn about it and it's like, well, what is this going to do for me? Yeah. Because time after time, they've not seen anything change. Um, there is a big spotlight on um, the Northern Territory right now. There's a big spotlight in a number of different areas where blackfellas could actually change um, the direction in the election, but there is still no discussion about blackfellas in those regions. Um, And the issues that matter to them, you know, housing. It's insane how little has been done about housing crisis in our remote communities. Maintenance issues, ongoing climate change. Where where is climate on the agenda? We it's call crazy. it a climate crisis in mm. our communities. Um, I get scared that you know, in thirty to fifty years, my community, Lajamanu, Central Desert, or Northern Northern Desert, um, mm. is going to be unlivable because of the rising temperatures there. Uh, we are running out of food sources. We're running out of water sources. Even in the Torres Strait, you know, we have a massive campaign to go to the United Nations and they want to take the um, government, they want to take them head on and say, you have breached our human rights Mm. because of what the future you've taken away from us with rising sea levels and your lack of action on climate change. But that is not being talked about. Um, Yeah, I think there is a lot of frustrations. Yeah. Um, amongst a lot of mob right now, but we are having these conversations amongst ourselves and within our own media circles. So um, if people feel like they're not hearing about black issues on the agenda, then I, I, I'd say that you have a choice. You can actually choose what media you consume yeah. um, and you can find the media that does talk about those issues. So do it because, um, yeah, you're not going to have the politicians set that agenda for you. You need to go out and make it a thing, make it important and a priority to you. You can also fund Indigenous X and (laughs) you can make donations, you can uh, join the Patreon, you can, there's loads of ways you can help support um, incredible programs like Our Truth, Our Way, which um, I am so excited for those. It's up to eight uh, young First Nations creatives who will, could be part of that internship program. And to have you leading them, Rachel, they are incredibly fortunate and it's going to be amazing. Oh, thank you. I hope so. I just, look, to be honest, I'm just excited to learn by all the young mob who come on board because, like, just watching the applicants come through and and seeing what young people are doing on social media when they don't have, um, when they're not being published on other platforms, they are smart, they are creative Mm. and they're so bloody funny. Like, I just, yeah, I really am so excited to work with them. I just want to ask you about one more thing before you go. So I've got, we've, you're also a curator and, I mean, I, what I think is really amazing um, with you is how you diversify your storytelling. Like, basically, you will take any media and just kind of really um, find a um, connecting, a, a great way to connect stories to people. And there was mm-hmm. an amazing program that you curated um, at the Sydney Opera House um, 
and I'd l- yarning country, and I'd love it if you could just tell us about that. Oh, um, yeah, thanks for remembering that one. It feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs> I um, got to bring together a beautiful group of uh, oral storytellers um, for a program um, called Yarning Country at the Sydney Opera House uh, for, I think it was just before NAIDOC week, actually. I insisted it didn't fall in NAIDOC week because mm. I said that's Black Christmas for us. We're too busy. Um, <laughs> but funny story about it, actually. We um, So we had a beautiful lineup. We had um, Dreaming Now was um, performing there alongside Kian. He had his, uh, sorry, not Kian, um, alongside, um, gosh, my brain has gone absolutely blank because I haven't thought about Yarning Country in that's so long. That's all right. I put you on the um, spot. Derek Nanup dancing alongside him there. And um, we had... Uncle Vic Sims um, oh, telling stories great. at the beginning, and it was just a, it was a beautiful night of oral storytelling and celebrating um, how our um, nations, people from across the country, um, share story and yeah. share country. And um, it, we had a sold out night. Mm-hmm. I was really excited, um, very nervous, mm-hmm. and day before um, was the first day of the Sydney um, outbreak, the huge oh. one mid last year. <gasps> so. Um, Last-minute scramble, they still didn't lock us down, so as we know. They dragged their feet. So they let us perform, but we just, we made the call to do no audience um, mm. except family and friends. Um, it was just, yeah, and, and we made the right call because, as we know, it absolutely blew up a week later. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was it was it was a bizarre thing. We had the we had the whole room ready for a sold out audience. A lot yeah. of black fellas are going to be coming along, and then we ended up just doing it to an empty room with our families and <laughs> family and friends sitting front row. <laughs> but you recorded actually, it, right? Uh, we recorded it. Yeah. It's up on the website yeah. still. You can watch Brilliant. it there. But yeah, yeah, it was um it was a really special. Um, yeah, thanks for reminding that's me. That's okay. No, I just loved it. I've watched it, and I'm just like, oh yeah, man, that's so cool, and I'd love to see um you know something like that again. <laughs> Um, and yeah. uh, that was a false ending because I do have one more question. I'm really intrigued okay. about the DART Centre for um, Journalism and Trauma in the Asia Pacific yeah. um, that you're on the board for. Can you tell us a bit more about the the scope of, the, of that organisation? Yeah. Um, so they started in the US through Columbia School of Journalism in New York and uh, they've been in the Asia Pacific for a couple of decades now, led by Kate McMahon, who retired last year. Um, and uh, I guess what uh, the reason for DART's existence is to ensure more ethical, trauma-informed reporting. So on the side of the journalists, you know, knowing how to not inflict trauma when you're interviewing traumatised subjects. Mm. Um, and the other side of DART is to actually look at and treat the trauma that journalists encounter in the field um, and editors as well actually when they look at footage. What I've, um, my involvement in the organisation has very much been looking at it from a First Nations perspective and um, thinking about the fact that as black journalists we cover stories and black journalists covering black affairs, Mm. we cover stories every day that impact us Um, and often they're closer to home. Some are closer to home than others and we don't go home and just like, you know, switch off from that. We go home and those phone calls follow us. If we cover a story that is particularly close to our community, which will happen in every black journalist's career, um, we will often get phone calls afterwards following up and if we don't get them, we will make them to check in on the people that we have just shared their story because that is that trusting, it's that accountability thing. We can't escape it. 
but we also wouldn't want to. Yeah. And what that ends up um, becoming is this huge amount of pressure, this huge weight on our shoulders. And um, I, I believe that the rate of trauma exposure of First Nations journalists is a lot higher than non-Indigenous journalists, but we have no research on that. The only mm. research on exposure of um, First Nations journalists up to trauma, I think, was done in Brazil. <clears throat> Otherwise, broadly speaking, it is um, entire populations that are taken into account. So what I try and do with DART is um, create networks, um, peer support, looking at how our, our biggest asset is each other and black media, um, and that if we can talk about the trauma that we're exposed to in the field and in the newsroom as well. I, I say this specifically to mainstream newsrooms. We are exposed to a hell of a lot of trauma in those newsrooms, mm. um, and that is part of it as well. But if we don't talk about it with each other, we burn out. We leave media altogether, and I've seen that so often. You know, there is a, there's a revolving door in so many organisations right now with their Indigenous affairs roles, and I think that that has to do with organisations who realise they need to fill a spot, they need to get blackfellas in the door, but they don't think about the support for that journalist before they get in. Yep. They have not thought about what that journalist is going to encounter in their career. Um, they just think they're, you know, they're filling, they're filling their quota. Um, and know, that journalist is expected to adapt to the existing system, which is, you know... Exactly. ...has, yeah, like you said, no support or safety net for them. That's it. And so um, we want to empower young black journalists and older black journalists to um, challenge those systems, but to talk about it with each other as well and then to agitate for change within all news media, you know, including black media. Like, we have a long way to go as well in terms of building ourselves up. It's just that we at least have a foundation that was made for us. And so, you know, I think if we fall back on that, then we can't really go wrong. Rachel, thank you so much. I could keep talking, but you have a dodgeball court waiting. <laughs> I've, been, true. I've been chatting to Rachel Hocking, who's a creative development manager at Indigenous X, and so much more. Support Indigenous X. Get on there right now and donate some money if you haven't already. Uh, and um, keep reading. Thank you, Rachel. Can't wait to hear more. Yeah, no, absolutely. Can't wait to talk again soon, Jess. Great show too. Thanks. Cheers. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Thanks for tuning in. If you have been a little bit disillusioned by the media during the election, just um, um, go and, as you're doing, listening to Triple R, go and check out some independent um, media. There's loads of it in Australia. I mean, I'm just looking at the Indigenous X landing page now and there's some cracking stories on there. And what a fabulous, incredible woman Rachel is. We hope to hear a lot more soon. I'll be back next week. Ciao for now. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Sample. At Lily Juice. And at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.